Hi, Experience Architecture community. A few weeks ago, Bill and I had the chance to do something very special. While in Boston, we met with Bob Crandall. Mr. Crandall was the boss of American Airlines from 1980 through the 1990s, and he is the godfather of modern loyalty marketing. The American Airlines Advantage program was launched in 1980, and this was the first frequent flyer program of its kind that tied your data to your ticket via the American Airlines Saver System. Uh, truly revolutionary, first of its kind, and it goes without saying that this program revolutionized modern air travel. Mr. Crandall is a true titan of the industry, and his thoughts on marketing in the airline industry are as applicable today as they were in the 1980s. We really, truly hope you enjoy this special podcast. Let's jump right in. Um, you know, the name of this podcast is Experience Architecture. We had, this is episode number seven. <laughs> we are live and recording. So, I mean, Advantage was the first loyalty program in the travel and hospitality industry. There were some small, you know, the green books, the coupon books that were before that for the grocery stores. But Advantage was the first real loyalty program. Whose idea was it? And how did it become to be? Because, I mean, you had a big team back then. Of course. Who, yeah. Who knows? You know, the, yeah, the green stamps you talked about, S and H, which people used to stick in books. In, in fact, when we, when we developed Advantage, if we, we used to say, you know, if this really works, we'll become the new S&H green stamps because S&H was a, was a big thing in those days. It was successful. So I don't know that Advantage was any one person's idea. I mean, there were a whole team of people, myself, uh, Mike Hunn, uh, Tom Plaskett, Al Briarley, and lots of other people, all of whom who were part of the group that thought about it. So the notion was that the airline was the airline business was very competitive. How do we get people to choose the same airline every time? And so we came up with this idea. And the key to the idea, of course, was the fact that we were going to keep the records so you wouldn't have to stick anything in books. And so it, we would keep the records in Sabre. And when we announced it, within 24 hours, certainly within 48 hours, uh, every other airline said, they would, we're going to match that, absolutely. But of course, we can't keep the records, so we're going to give you coupons. So all the airlines were handing out coupons, and TWA, within 48 hours, had screwed up the core idea. The core idea was that you could accumulate miles during the year, and at the end of the year, that you, you, you had reached an award point. At that point, then you had to start again, and you had to accumulate a, a certain number of points during the year. And of course, the idea was, if you're going to take five trips this year, we want you to take all five trips on America. And TWA said, oh, no, you never mind that. We just let you accumulate this uh, across time periods. Failing to understand that that would immediately cause every traveler to join every program, thus undercutting the notion of individual carrier loyalty. Right. But So they screwed it up. 
Oh, now, the fact, the fact of the matter is, so despite that being screwed up, it's been very successful. And because of the notion, because, it, because the reality is that uh, most locations are dominated by a single cab, the program has had its desired effect. Some of, some of that has been diluted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of the endless accumulation program. But the general idea has been quite successful. <laughs> I, would, I would say so, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's been referred to as the, the second currency of the United States. You know, at, at one point, some some wag printed up some dollar bills with my picture on it. Oh, that's awesome. They, they weren't around for very long. But, I mean, <laughs> but the point is, you know, it really, the advantage miles did become, for a while, because the the program was very dominant for the first year or so, they did kind of become the second currency. And, of course, the loyalty miles generally have, in fact, displaced uh, uh, green stamps. Correct. They have. Oh, that is that's so interesting. TW, so within 48 hours... Every other carrier had matched. Absolutely. Because oh. they saw the great power of it. Oh, my goodness. You know, heaven's murgatory. That is, <laughs> that is so interesting. Well, the airlines also were yeah. very famous for somebody would have a fair sale and just instantly everybody else would match it. So a lot of follow me there. Well, of course, that's absolutely right. Look... The airline industry then, and to a much greater extent than today, was very competitive. And the consequence, no matter what anybody did, everybody was going was to match it uh, right away. And, if, and, of course, to this day, fares are instantly matched. Yeah. If any carrier that changes its fare, all of its direct competitors will change that, that those fares on those same routes to match instantaneously. And the reason, of course, is because the unique nature of the business is, number one, it's an expensive product, and number two, it is uh, almost entirely sold over the Internet. And the consequence is everybody knows what everybody else's price is Absolutely. on every product. Absolutely. And therefore, therefore, there's a lot of instantaneous matching. Understood. Understood. So, 1980, 1981, this, this comes together for advantage. Uh, this is five years after deregulation? No, no, about two and a half. Two and a half years after deregulation happened in '78. Okay, um, what was this part of the response to deregulation? The advantage for oh, I think that's an overstatement. Okay, the, the answer is everything we did was a response to deregulation. Everything we did was a, was an effort to prevail in a highly competitive business. So we didn't think of this as a response to deregulation. We just thought of it as a, a, a competitive weapon. Gotcha. What was the cost to put it? I mean, this has never been done before. And so I you've got no, this. I, I have no yeah. idea what the cost was, but, you know, it was essentially an irrelevancy. We, whatever, you know, obviously we spent money on it. We wrote sure. some programs to, to enable us to keep records. Mm -hmm. And we set up all the administrative apparatus and we trained all the people. So were there expenses? Yes, of course. I mean, were they substantial? Yes, in terms of your checkbook or mine? Sure. But in the context of the airline, no, they weren't. It was negligible. This was, this was not a big deal. 
How, how big was the deal in terms of getting operations and the technology teams to come together? Because, I mean, yeah, there's some code that needs to be written in Saber, but there's also there's look, the look, gate agent. Oh, look, sorry. management. Yeah. Management in any big, complicated business is about appropriately coordinating assets and people and money. That's what management does. In this particular case, I think it's fair to say, American was well managed, and the consequence is it worked. Assignments were made, assignments were completed, training was done. They said, there's nothing very extraordinary about this. Normally speaking, America as it used to be, dams got built, roads got built, programs got done, and it worked. We used to have a country where things worked. They don't work very well anymore. <laughs> it's too true, sir. It's too true. So given, given it's a well-oiled machine in America, and I, I have to ask, and the answer can be it's nothing, what were, the, were there any missteps in the initial rollout of the loyalty program? I'm sure there were, but okay. I, there was nothing sufficiently monumental to stick in my mind. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Uh, how long did your CFO did take her or him to see the value in the program, to see the return on investment? <laughs> Look, once again, in any properly run corporation, uh, the only person that decides anything is the, is the boss. So whether the CFO thought it would work or not was irrelevant. I, I thought it was going to work, mm -hmm. and that's all that mattered. What was the first campaign that you did to roll it out? How did, how, because this is before email. Once again, yeah. come on. This, yeah. this is 40 years ago. Sure. That's okay. <laughs> I don't remember what yeah. we did. The fact of the matter is, obviously, we made some kind of an announcement and made a big splash. Oh, it absolutely did. Because, because as I've already said to you, every other airline matched it within 48 hours. So, so we, what we did to announce it, I don't remember. I don't remember whether we did newspaper ads. I assume we did because in those days... Newspaper ads were the way you announced this kind of thing. And the consequence is I'm quite sure we did newspaper ads and probably we did television as well. But my, my guess is that the fundamental, the basic building block was newspaper advertising. Well, I remember in almost all the movies and television shows yeah. in the, the 80s where I was, yeah. I was born in the sure, 80s, sure. <laughs> as I'm sure you're picking up on. <laughs> <laughs> um, American was always the airline. That was you. So Home Alone, you right. know, Die Hard, right. Vengeance, all the all the big movies. Um, and uh, I remember as as a kid thinking, you know, like American was the airline you fly when you made it. I mean, and so you know, the American of the '80s when Advantage came to bear um, was in was ingrained in popular culture. And so you know, in you terms wanna, of you, yeah. you want to keep in mind, although that is true, but we we had a very good run in the 1980s, but you need to keep in mind what happened. 1978, when deregulation occurred, American in 19... I joined American in 1973, and when I walked through the door on the first day, they, one of the other senior vice presidents said to me, I hope you understand what a hell of a mess this company's in. In May of 1973, we fired the chairman. In June of 1973, we fired the president. So by the summer of 1973, we had recalled C.R. Smith, who by then 
was a really old guy. I mean, he was as old as I am now. <laughs> he was in his 80s. And he came back to work uh, and ran the company from the summer of 73 to February of 74, at which time a man by the name of Albert Casey, Al Casey, uh, who was at the time the publisher of the, of the, New York, of the L.A. Times, and, but who was very well acquainted with several people on our board who thought highly of him. He came to work as chairman in, in February of 74. <clears throat> At that time, when I, when I joined the company, I was the senior vice president of finance. And so in the 70s, American was a very small carrier and a shrinking carrier and a failing carrier. When 78 happened, when deregulation happened, both Casey and I thought that, that deregulation would decimate the industry, and in many respects it has. And so we opposed it, and then deregulation happened, and we said to ourselves, okay, let's get on with it. These are the new rules. And I think it is fair to say that between 78 and 95, uh, we were by all odds the most successful of the U.S. airlines. We grew more, more rapidly. At the time of deregulation, American had less than a 10% market share in the U.S. market and was the third or fourth largest airline in America. And by the time I retired, American was the largest airline in the world. So we did a tremendous amount of stuff, right? The big, the most dramatic thing we did in the, in the very early 80s, I became president of the company in 1980, and very shortly thereafter, we struck a deal with all the unions by which American agreed that we would vastly enlarge the size of the airline in exchange for labor agreements that allowed us to bring new employees into the airline at the same price as the startup airlines were paying, at the same rates the startup airlines were paying. So between 1978 and the next 20 years, well over 150 airlines were created and failed. During that time, American, we went from round numbers, 300 airplanes to 800 airplanes. And we did that as a consequence of this agreement, which many companies are now doing, where you bring new employees in at lower pay rates than the existing employees, and there's a period of time before they build up to that rate. But we did that in the early 1980s, and as a consequence, our growth exploded. Now, the next thing we did, the next big thing, I guess, was the Advantage Program. And beyond that, we went on and did a bunch of other stuff. We changed, we changed the whole fare structure several times. Mm -hmm. And the consequence is you, we had a period, the early 1980s to the tail end of the 90s, when American was a very dominant carrier in the U.S., in the US and which included lots of publicity, et cetera, mm -hmm. as you say, newspapers, magazines, movies, et cetera. And the consequence, and, and, and so that was a very exciting time for all of us. So in effect, although we opposed deregulation, uh, once it happened, we dealt with it more successfully than most of our competitors did, and so we had a period of great success. That's, oh my goodness, it's very, very interesting. The first-class passengers in the 80s compared to first-class passengers today, they're, they're very different. 
I mean, especially coming out of deregulation. Why? They're richer than the people that buy <laughs> back. That's what they had true then, and it's sure. true now. Well, no, but they were, they were even... Um, and correct me if this is wrong, sir, but the today, airlines um, make, especially when it comes to international flights, mm-hmm. make the majority of their margin on the business class and the first class cabin, because those are, those are the persons who are paying well, the higher fares. true in the 80s, too. True in the 80s, too. So, but today, the margin, the difference between, especially in the domestic flights where the upgrades happen as a result of the program, whether it's Advantage or any of the other airline programs, the majority of the people sitting up there are there because of their loyalty to the airline, not because they bought a first-class ticket. I don't think that's true anymore. Okay. There, there was a period of time, and once again, look, I've been, I've been retired for a long time, so I don't know what the composition of the typical first-class cabin is today. In 2018, but there are there are many more actual first class tickets today than there were 15 years ago. Okay. Right, during the 80s and the 90s, most of the people you're, you're quite right. A lot of the, certainly a lot of the people who were in the first class cabin were upgrades. Now you have to keep in mind, of course, that an upgrade, which is, is thought of as being free, but of course it isn't free because the upgrade is being awarded to somebody that has already bought a lot of relatively high-priced regular fare tickets, mm-hmm. even if they're coach. Yes. But so, so yes, as, as the 80s and the 90s went along, and as the competition among frequent flyer programs matured, in the early 80s we had a great advantage, and then all the other programs kept getting bigger. All the airlines began to use upgrades as a competitive weapon. Right. So one of the things that happened in the mid-1980s, for example, which was interesting, as people began to do double and triple and quadruple miles, uh, we went to the government and we said, you know, you're not requiring people to do appropriate accounting. And eventually we got the accounting firms, the big firms, and the Internal Revenue Service to make some rules which compelled all the airlines to book appropriate liabilities for all these miles they were giving away. And the kind of consequences, and, and we, were, we were happy to see that happen because we had been booking those liabilities right along. And it was driving us nuts that these guys were giving triple and quadruple miles without booking appropriate liabilities. So we took what was we thought an appropriate action. We finally got the tax laws changed or the accounting rules changed. So people had to account for the liability as they do now. And we are still living the effects of that change because in our in our loyalty system, mm-hmm. we just had BDO in last, uh, two weeks ago, to make sure that we do it right on the software system. So, so it's now called a SOC 2 type 2 re- liability report on the technology like, side. Yeah. So. Well, we, we can claim credit for the SOC 2 tax, whatever the heck you Yes. Thanks so much for that. You're welcome. <laughs> for many years, the airlines just made money on selling miles to partners. Well, they still do now. Yeah, yeah. Big profits in it. So real distribution. I mean, the miles have become a major distribution channel. It was That was never part of the original plan. But the fact is, as it soon became apparent, as we replaced, as we kind of displaced at the SNH stamps, mm-hmm. then it became apparent.
and did you can sell them out. Right. And of course, we started doing that, and the airlines have continued doing it, and so, and it has become a big business. Absolutely. Last question on first class when you rolled out Advantage. So when you're sitting, you're sitting in first class, you know, president of the company, flying around. I'm sure you flew every week many, many times. Did anyone feel like first class was diluted because people were now getting upgrades to go up there? Was was there any sort of discontent? Sure, it was. I mean, look, you always you you hear that. Sure. On the other hand, nobody ever said, "Well, I'm so cross about this, I'll go sit and coach." Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. Um. When you rolled out the initial program, how long until you introduced tiering? So today for American, it's gold, platinum, platinum pro, and executive platinum. I, I don't know the yeah. answer. I don't recall the answer to your question. I, I simply don't know. But of course, it came about because of the phenomenon we've already talked about, mm-hmm. where people were getting upgraded. And the consequences, we said, well, we can't upgrade everybody. How are we going, how are we going to differentiate? So let's see, if we can't, let's see if we can't differentiate between the guy who flies with us 25 times a year and the guy who flies with us twice a year. And so we did. So, people, so the notion of frequency, either the frequency of purchase or the accumulation of a certain number of miles, came to Came into, then the tiering came into existence. I understand. And of course, that became very competitive. I mean, my, my brother, who flew around quite a lot, was standing at LaGuardia one day, and they, was, there was a flight today, and he was bored. So he says to the guy next to him, he says, You know, you got the new uranium card? And the guy goes, Bananas. <laughs> uranium card? I didn't even heard of such a thing. Because he had platinum cards and so on and so on. And so finally, my brother had to admit to the guy that there was no such thing as a uranium credit. Oh my gosh, that's too funny. Well, that's actually a lead into one of the other questions I had. Have you seen the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air? It was yes. Okay, so the card that the chief pilot hands mm-hmm. George Clooney in that movie, that, that was fake. That, that didn't actually happen. I don't believe so, no. Um, but, Who knows? You yeah. know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on that I'm, I'm now sure. out of touch with. <laughs> was there anything that before tiering, you know, when you just rolled out the program, or even before you had a program, that you did personally as president of the company to recognize your absolute top spenders? Was it, you know, today, American... Well, sure, look, yeah. the whole notion of recognizing uh, regular customers goes all the way back. Uh, when C.R. Smith was president of the company back in the late 30s and early 40s, before the you know before the war, uh, he created something called the Admirals Clubs, and the original Admirals Clubs membership cards. You only got in the Admirals Club if you were invited by C. R. Smith, and the membership card was a piece of metal, em- 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 embossed metal. And I, 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 when I got into the game, of course, in the seventies, C. R. Smith was a legend. And he had retired to become Secretary of Commerce. And then, as I've already described to you, came back to work in the summer of 1973. But so the notion of rewarding uh, regular users goes all the way back to the late 30s and the early 40s. It originally took the form of a personal invitation to join the Admirals Club, 
et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure it took other forms after that. Uh, and indeed, all through the 1950s and the 1960s, no, oh, that, that's wrong because I wasn't there, but it, it happened in those days, and it also happened through the 70s when I was running the marketing side of the company. Uh, we used to have a big golf tournament, and we would invite 50 or 60 uh, professional athletes and a, a similar number of our best customers into a three or four day golf and schmooze outing somewhere in California, Arizona, et cetera. And then they were very nice events, very upscale. And, and you find a lot of people around the business world today, most of them now retired, who went to those meetings and had uh, very nice recollections of them. So, so like every business, Absolutely. the airlines were in the business of cultivating their best customers. Absolutely. I was a caddy for 10 years. I started caddying when I was 11 okay. years old. Yeah, yeah. And I got the opportunity a few times to caddy at Pro-Am events. Yeah, those kinds of And, sure. uh, oh boy. I, I, I always tell Bill, I learned way more about business and how to be a business person from caddying than I did from college. <laughs> I also didn't, I didn't major in business in college. I majored in chemical engineering inexplicably. So if you can't answer or it's secret, it's, I totally understand. The concierge key. So the concierge key is... Um, the concierge key is nothing more or less than a, than a program okay. that, that uh, caters to the, to the meeting and greeting frequent flyers. So it's the same kind of thing. Look, if you happen to be the Shah of Iran, sure. right, or, or the... Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and you travel on American, somebody's going to meet your plane, and they're going to put you on a cart, and they're going to drive you down to the gate, blah, blah, blah. And that's the kind of thing that the company does for concierge key. Right. So it, it is, and every airline does the same thing. Each airline calls it something different. But if you've got, if you fly often enough, and you're in at the appropriate uranium level, <laughs> uh, and you become a member of Concierge Key, and, and yeah. you have these, these meet and greet services, basically. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So when you retired, or when you mm -hmm. were the president of American, did they give you one? When you retired, did they give you a Concierge Key? Well, look. The, and it's okay if you I've can't got, say I've got it. something way better than a Concierge Key, and that is that... that and this is a great compliment, which, which both Jan and I are pleased with. When I travel, most of the people still know who I am. And many of them say, oh, you were a great president. Please come back. Please come back. I say, yeah, sure, whenever they ask. But <laughs> in any event, because, because I continue to be well-known and because the people at, who are running the company have been very gracious, I get treated very well. Excellent. So, Excellent. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, with modern loyalty, so what we say at the agency is that loyalty marketing is no longer about a points play. It it to travel and travel and hospitality points or miles, whatever whatever you're tracking, still has some worth. But really, loyalty marketing has become experience marketing. And I have the data on you. And whether you're going into a retail store or you're staying at a hotel or you're traveling on an airline, I need to make a customized experience for you. And that can mean 
if I, the, the example that we use is a Singapore Airlines example, when we talk to uh, clients about this, which is, uh, there was a story a number of years ago in the travel blog space of a traveler riding coach on Singapore Airlines, and they asked for a very specific brand of sparkling water when they sat down. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, I, I don't have that brand, we have another brand of sparkling water. And then the crew, through just hustle and grit, made sure that that brand of sparkling water was available for a coach customer on the return flight. And that's, that experience will, in, you know, endow loyalty forever. I, 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 I guess I would only simply say to you, yes, I've heard the story, and yes, I understand the theory, and lots of luck on implementing it. Lots of luck on the technology side, because, yeah. <laughs> Not only on the technology side, look, trying to customize travel experiences for anybody but the very, very high end is essentially impossible. Okay. High tech. Now, you know, people people are going to probably come up with anecdotes and say, well, yeah, no, it is possible. But I don't think it is. The reality is, look, let's, let's suppose you, you stay at Marriott hotels all the time. But the reality is, unless the clerk, unless the system works in such a way that the clerk where you check in knows that you've stayed at Marriott 5,000 times, and she's supposed to acknowledge that. Most of the time, she's not going to do it because it's more work than not doing it. She didn't check the computer anyway, or the computer entry doesn't get made. So the notion, sure, I understand, you know, individualized marketing uh, is intended to have an impact, and when it works, it may have an impact, but it's awfully difficult. Gotcha. Interesting. So with that in mind, the answer is probably nothing, but um, if, if you could do what, if you could add one thing to the Advantage program today, what, what would it be? What, what, ex, what experience as a, as a frequent traveler? I mean, you know, I, 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 again, I think, I think from, I think the only thing that airlines, fundamentally the thing that airlines can do, I mean, what you eat and what you drink on the airplane doesn't really make any difference. Yeah. What makes a difference? What makes a difference is the flight on time. And, is, and, and you know, is the, is, the, is the gate agent nice and is the flight attendant nice? Mm -hmm. So those are the key elements of success. So what the traveler wants is they want to go to the airport, they want to stand in line as little time as possible, they want to get through security smoothly, they want to get on the airplane, they want to go at, on time and land on time. That's what they want to do. Absolutely. You give them that experience and you, you're a success. You don't give them that experience and you're not a success. Now, everybody knows, of course, that isn't going to happen every time. So how well you train your people to deal with the unavoidable discrepancies is going to become a differentiating, a differentiating factor. Well, so it, it, it's employee, on employee training and employee qualifications are very important. And the current, the airline industry, in my opinion, generally speaking, has gotten off base because they've got way too many people with whom customers interact that really don't work for the airline. The airlines have been trying to offload a lot of lot of employees onto second-tier employers mm -hmm. 
<coughs> who don't pay enough and don't, and since they don't pay enough, can't get appropriately qualified people. And the consequence, a lot of interactions in today's travel world are with people who don't really work for either the airline or the hotel, as the case may be. And I, I think the whole notion of offloading employees is, uh, is a mistake, and I, which I think is denigrating the travel experience. That that is so interesting. What I was going to ask you, but I, this question sort of uh, alters alters the question, which is, um, it sounds like in the seventies and the eighties, your people were expected to do their jobs and to perform at a high standard, and that's just how it worked. And today, companies are now talking about empowering their employees, which really is code for just expecting their employees to do their job and to know what the right thing is to do their job with their customers. I was reading a book by uh, General McChrystal, who was uh, you know, CENTCOM commander. And he talks about this individual empowerment and pushing the initiative of leadership down the chain so that people can do the right thing for the customer. And in their case, it was the right thing for the warfighter at the right time. Uh, but it seems like in the airline business, the problem is the airlines can't even control that because they've pushed those responsibilities well, gotta, to third gotta, parties. Look, you got to keep in mind there are two kinds of issues. The, the, airline, the airline industry has been struggling with this whole notion of empowerment. How much latitude do you give the, the gate agent? Uh, you have a rule that says, okay, wait a minute, a, a, a passenger who pays to ride on a five o'clock airplane and who arrives at the airport early uh, wants to get on the four o'clock airplane. Do you let the gate agent do that or do you not? Well, the, the notion of empowering people to do the right thing says, wait a minute, hey, the guy is here, it's quarter of four, we got empty seats on the four o'clock airplane, why not let him on the airplane? Well, the answer, of course, is, well, yes, but if you allow, if you begin to allow people to do that kind of thing, you undercut the fair structure, which says, uh, in, if you want the if you want the freedom to change airplanes, you have to pay more. Right. You didn't pay more, and therefore you don't get the freedom uh, to change airplanes. So this is the this is the issue of empowerment, mm -hmm. as opposed to the issue of courtesy and training. So if, if a person were perfectly trained, if the airline says, look, I want to enforce the rules, but if the, air, if the person at the counter is perfectly trained, the, the person would say, you know, Mr. Jones, I am very, very sympathetic to you. I mm -hmm. understand perfectly. But I can't let you on the airplane. And the reason I can't let you on the airplane is that my boss, Mr. Crandall, won't, won't let that happen. Here's his card. You should write to him. Mm -hmm. That person is going to go away from the counter, not enraged. They go away from the counter hating Mr. Crandall, right. the chief executive. <laughs> they but might get not, pen and paper. But he's not yeah. going to go away from the counter enraged because he's going to say, "Well, this is a really carefully trained person, and she explained to me why she can't do something that she would like to do, and I would like her to do, but she can't do it." And I understand that. I'm going to write this down. Right. So. So there's a difference between empowerment and training, right? And the airlines have struggled with that over, or I certainly struggled with it. We, 
we we did various experiments and how much how much can you let the individual in the field alter the rules. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we went too far and all of a sudden expenses spiked through the roof. Yep. Airplanes were delayed because the guy's coming down the counter and he's running down the cockpit. And why not hold the airplane? Come on, all I need to do is wait 30 seconds, yes, but then you missed your takeoff slot. Right. right. Or the crew went illegal. Mm -hmm. Or a number of other unhappy things happened. So this whole notion, if, if, if I could do, if, if you could do one thing, what I would do is I would devote more time to finding qualified people and training them well. And then I would devote more time as well to making sure that the people who devise the rules mm -hmm. actually understand the airline business. The, in the airline business and in the, in the cable television business and in the landline telephone business and in the wireless telephone business and in all of the companies with whom we interact, there are too many rules made by people that don't understand how the real world functions. They've never been there. They get hired, they're a chemical engineer, and they get, <laughs> yep. they, they get hired and they sit in an office and all of a sudden they're told to make rules and look at all this data, but sure. you can't do that. Yeah, got to go work as a ticket agent for a couple of years before you get to make a rule. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is too many companies don't insist on that, and therefore the rules get made by people who don't understand. And, and then they become enmeshed in a bureaucracy when somebody wants to change them. So the one thing I would say to people who want to be successful managers is walk around, walk around, and micromanage. <laughs> Get into the details. Get way down in the weeds. So you really understand yourself what's happening. So, I, given that, I have to ask you about one story I read about while I was doing research for the interview. The clock outside your office that was two minutes off. Is that a, is that a true story? No. Okay. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of true stories, but that, the, the, the clock outside my office that was two minutes off, if, if, if it existed, I never knew about it. Okay. okay. It's a true story that uh, uh, gate agents, somebody Customer was very upset. And finally, he yelled at the gate agent, Listen, do you have any idea who I am? And the gate agent picks up the microphone and says, Ladies and gentlemen of the gate area, this gentleman doesn't know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> anybody can help him. That's a true story. That's an old airline story. <clears throat> you know, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of airline stories. You know, the guy who gets on the, gets on the airplane with a garment bag. <clears throat> bulging with, you know, a whole bunch of suits and stuff and over his shoulder and the flight attendant says to him, and will your mother-in-law be having lunch with us? So, you know, the story about the dog in, in the Caribbean station, which if you've ever read that, that's a true story. Mm -hmm. The story about the olives is a true story. So there's a lot of... I wasn't going to ask you about the olive story. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Absolutely. But, yeah. You know, you, 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 that was nothing more or less than looking at something and saying, what, what the hell are we paying for four olives? So we don't need them. You only need three. As everyone Whatever. knows, you need three. <laughs> um, the...
you know, the other thing I was reading in terms of research were, was how you had your junior executives rotate through different jobs, which is... Well, of course they did, yeah. absolutely. We were, one of the reasons, one of the reasons we were very successful in the 80s and 90s was we hired a big class of really smart people every year. Mm-hmm. And they all, all of them, almost all of them came in as uh, financial analysts. And they would, they would you know, work in a variety of analytical posts. But then, then we would rotate them through. And, and, and the, the best of them, uh, the people that I, we really thought had long-term potential, we put them out in the field. We made them work for a year in the res office and for a while as ticket agents before they got positions of real responsibility. So that the people, for the most part, who were making the rules were people who knew how the airline worked. And the airline runs on the front line. That's where the airline works. I mean, works works at the ticket county, at the terminal, out on the ramps. That's where the airline works. And if you if you make rules that inhibit the ability of people to do those jobs properly, they're going to screw the place up. Absolutely. That's the big airlines are Yeah, absolutely. Well, sir, those are the questions we had. We want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for doing. For helping a little scrappy startup loyalty agency out. Um, uh, this is episode seven. We're here with Mr. Crandall, a former president and CEO of American Airlines, former chairman of the board, correct? And, uh, and he's here talking to us about the financials. So-